You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Whether you are happy or concerned by the outcome of the 2016 presidential election, it's safe to say everybody was a little bit surprised. In the years that have followed that political upset, the complete unconventionality of Donald Trump's presidency has left a lot of us at times confused, offended, and embarrassed, sometimes all at once. But our next guest says the GOP unknowingly set the stage for all this chaos for about a decade before Donald Trump stole the spotlight and shook up the highest office in the land. Tim Alberta is Political Magazine's chief political correspondent. He's also the author of the newly released book, American Carnage, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Tim, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning. Yeah. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about your book uh, today. But first, I want to pick up where we left off with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell and ask you about the testimony we saw yesterday. What were your reactions to what Bob Mueller said and did in front of Congress? You know, I suppose at 30,000 feet, Stephen, I don't think that we are in any uh, substantively different place today than we were 24 hours ago. It feels as though, you know, Democrats believed that the movie was going to be better than the book, and they hoped that by bringing Bob Mueller to Capitol Hill and putting him (laughs) in front of the cameras and having him say some of what was in the report, that that would make for, you know, damaging headlines and it would perpetuate, uh, you know, several news cycles and hopefully heighten awareness of just how serious some of what was in the report was for people who maybe didn't pay attention to it, uh, you know, which is including members of Congress themselves. I think at the end of the day, you know, it's important to recognize I covered Congress for a long time. Congress is a reality show. And members of Congress know where the cameras are. They know the angles. They know, you know, how to how to you know pitch their voices and uh, and how to manipulate their facial expressions. And it's all quite a bit of drama. Bob Mueller is an old school guy. This is this is a guy who spent his life uh, as a soldier and in law enforcement. Bob Mueller is not uh, a trained thespian, as so many of our lawmakers are at the federal level. And I think that that came through in the hearings. He, you know, he, he was a step slow. He seemed uncertain at times of exactly what some of these questions were driving at. And of course, you know, it was in many ways, as far as the questioning went, it was, you know, symmetrical partisan warfare. You You didn't see any Republicans on the panel at any point really determined to get to the truth about what was actually in the report, but they were more so attempting to consistently undermine Mueller's credibility. So I don't know that anything was achieved other than, you know, dragging Bob Mueller up there to make him answer questions that he had already made clear he didn't want to answer, that he, you know, he said, it's in the report. I I don't know what more I can add. So I think if Democrats were hoping that this was going to be some sort of a slam dunk, then they're certainly walking away disappointed. But I don't know that it was some great day for Republicans either. It essentially just seemed to perpetuate the status quo at this point. And and there was something about the way in which the Republican members of the committees were questioning Robert Mueller that I thought was somewhat risky. I mean, as you point out, this is not uh, some political hack who who people don't respect. Uh, In Washington in particular, uh, Bob Mueller has a a profile that has commanded respect for an awfully long time. Uh, I thought treating him the way that they did 
uh, ran the risk of of seeming disrespectful to to people who who think that you know as you point out a, a former marine former head of the FBI uh, now special counsel uh, that that he deserved better than what they gave him yeah look Stephen I would agree with you but I'm not sure that voters care much anymore and and I hate to sound cavalier in saying that but when the president of the United States is someone who mocked John McCain for being shot down over Vietnam mm. and who you know made remarks uh, about a woman's menstrual cycle and who boasted about the size of his genitals on stage during a presidential debate right there in Detroit in fact and who was caught on tape talking about you know, uh, getting away with sexual assault because he's a celebrity, the list could go on and on. My point being, there's there's a real sense, I think, that we're sort of through the looking glass at this mm. point and that attacks on Bob Mueller barely even register on the outrage scale uh, the way that maybe they would have five, six, ten years ago. Uh, but in so many ways, uh, our, our political ecosystem has been just turned upside down and transformed in a way to where things that once would have been considered inappropriate or outside of the mainstream. They are now just sort of our everyday political life. Hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Tim Alberta. He is Political Magazine's chief political correspondent and author of a new book called American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. We're talking, uh, at this point at least, about uh, Robert Mueller and his testimony in front of Congress yesterday. What did you think of what he said? Also, what did you think of what Congress's reaction was to what he said? And what do you think it should be going down the road? Do you think Democrats ought to launch an investigation, an impeachment uh, proceeding investigation into Donald Trump and his behavior during the 2016 presidential election and afterward? Or do you think this is all just politics run amok and that we ought to get back to the business of governing the country uh, and leave this uh, aside? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we will work uh, you into the conversation. Um, uh, Tim, I wonder what you make of the prospect of Democrats continuing this inquiry. Uh, as you said yesterday, they might have overplayed their hand a, a bit by by calling Mueller in front of these committees. They certainly would have expected, I think, a different outcome. Uh, what's the risk for them in continuing this uh, as we get ready, of course, to, to get back into the presidential campaign cycle? Well, I think the risk is twofold, Stephen. I would say the first Donald Trump thrives when he has a political foil. Uh, I think that's in part why you saw him going after AOC and the squad uh, over the last couple of weeks. And if you think back to the 2016 campaign, of course, there was you know low energy Jeb Bush, there was Lion Ted Cruz, there was little Marco Rubio, there was crooked Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump thrives, and he and he has a way of galvanizing his base of supporters when he has a foil. And I believe that impeachment for the president, the prospect of impeachment, would be a terrific foil. I think that the White House wants nothing more than House Democrats to push forward with impeachment hearings for the reason that I was about to get to, which number two in talking about the reason being twofold is that, you know, Democrats did not take back the House last November on promises to impeach the president, uh, on promises to, you know, pass the Green New Deal or to um, abolish ICE or or 
to uh, pass Medicare for all. That, that just was not the rallying cry for Democrats in taking back the House. While it's easy to pay attention to some of these progressive freshmen who have been sensationally effective in, in drawing these, you know, th- these huge crowds and in you know, bolstering their their profiles uh, using social media and sort of playing this new asymmetrical political game that Trump, I think, in so many ways mastered back in 2016. It's easy to forget that the majority makers uh, in the Democratic Party are people like Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan 8 and Haley Stevens in Michigan 11. All of these centrist Democrats across the country who flipped these longtime Republican seats in the suburbs from L.A. to Salt Lake City to Detroit to Georgia uh, to Atlanta, rather, you name it, all across the country, they flipped these traditionally Republican-held seats by promising to work to lower health care costs, by promising to work with Republicans on certain things like lowering the deficit and, and, and reducing the debt and getting spending under control and creating jobs. So there, this, these were not fire and brimstone campaigns. And, and the risk that Democrats run if they do, in fact, open impe- impeachment proceedings is that they hand ammunition to Republicans to say, look, these people, they're not serious about legislating. They're not serious about trying to deal with the problems facing the American people every day. All, they, all they're doing with this majority that you gave them last November is perpetuating this political witch hunt against the president. Now, regardless of whether or not you think that's true, it can be a very effective line of attack. And, and Nancy Pelosi knows that better than anybody. So what she's simultaneously trying to do here is throw a bone to the party's base by making sure that these committee chairmen uh, that Congresswoman Dingell was just alluding to, that they are pursuing separate tracks of investigation into the president. As far as Russia is concerned, as far as his finances and his ethical uh, entanglements are concerned, while at the same time, you know, making sure that House Democrats are consistently trying to pass bills that do demonstrate a commitment to everyday issues. And Obviously, there's a, there's a complaint among some progressives in the caucus that, look, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, that we can, we can do both. We can open impeachment proceedings while trying to legislate. But anybody who's ever been around impeachment proceedings, they understand, and, and, and there are veterans who have been around Washington far longer than I have, who speak to this in both parties, and they say, look, when you start trying to impeach a president of the United States, it is all eclipsing. Nothing else matters. They're, 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 you, could, you could pass the most meaningful legislation in the world on the floor, and it's going to be on page four of the newspaper. It just, it's overshadowing everything else. Mm. And obviously, I think that's what Pelosi is very concerned about. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. So let's go to Anthony in Lincoln Park. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello, Stephen, and hey. hello, guests. Um, good to talk to you. So I was just want to comment on the fact that there's this like legal opinion, right, that the president can't be indicted or what have you. I don't really know why. But I just found out yesterday that President Ulysses Grant was once arrested while he was the president for speeding in a horse carriage. So if <laughs> that president was arrested, clearly this guy who's broken the law so many times, he could be indicted, arrested, what have you. That's my uh, <laughs> Anthony, I appreciate I appreciate that historical reference and <laughs> and its relevance to this discussion. Uh, Tim, I, you know, I do think for some people it's confusing to 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 hear Robert Mueller say, "Okay, here are the things that we think the president did." Uh, those things, in most people's minds, I think, uh, amount to the idea of obstruction. 
uh, of justice or their, their common understanding of it. But then Mueller says, hey, I actually can't prosecute him for those things because he is the president of the United States. I mean, in a country where we say no one is above the law, I think it's difficult for people to get their minds around that. Yeah, I think it's that last point you made, Stephen, that nobody is above the law. And yet, well, this person holds this office, they sort of are above the law. And it's very confusing. And I think it's difficult to reconcile for, for a lot of voters who, you know, obviously, presidents no longer drive themselves around. So Ulysses S. Grant was in a unique position driving his horse carriage uh, 100 plus years ago. Too fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, too much horsepower, I suppose, as it were. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, though, look... He is benefiting from a a legal determination that was made within the Justice Department decades ago that essentially concluded that a president cannot be indicted while in office. And the reasoning behind it was that, you know, the president of the United States, the commander in chief of the military, the chief executive of the country has so much on their plate they are dealing with life and death situations every day, attempting to defend the country from enemies, foreign and domestic, that that the distraction imposed by attempting to uh, pursue criminal proceedings against that person, that it is just inappropriate, that, that, that it is potentially dangerous to national security. And so that was the determination made uh, by those OLC guidelines within the Department of Justice. And I think that obviously, as Mueller alluded to, or maybe even flat out said in, in the hearing yesterday that, yes, once Donald Trump leaves office, he could be potentially uh, indicted or he could potentially face criminal charges for this activity that he cannot be uh, charged with now that, well, because he holds this office. And I look, obviously, I think for lots of people, regardless of part, partisan political persuasion, that is a bit of a head scratcher because we do live in this in this ju- judicial system that that you know declares that nobody is above the law and that we adhere to the rule of law and for one person to seemingly not be subject to the rule of law i think is awfully confusing to yeah. to a lot of us yeah uh, again, Anthony, really appreciate uh, that funny historical reference uh, and uh, your particip- participation in the conversation here. Let's go to Dolores in Kego Harbor. Dolores, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. How are you? How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm a lawyer. I could say a lot about the legal issues here, but I just want to make a comment that's probably very ageist, and it struck me yesterday watching Mueller, you know, how he was faltering a little bit and seemed to be uh, stumbling here and there. And um, it it just struck me that we, it seems the fate of our nation is now in the hands of two and possibly three men, if you consider Biden as the front runner for the Democrats, that we've got three men in the 70s in different stages of decline Hmm. running this country or potentially running this country and and the fate of the nation coming in uh, to their hands, and it just that worries me too. I I can have terrible concerns about Trump's mental stability, but mm. yesterday it struck me watching Mueller that he was kind of frail, and um, not that that should factor into what he had to say. But I think for a lot of people watching him, they they write him off, or they have written him off because of you know his just the way he yeah no no i think that's that's an interesting observation dolores i'm glad you called um uh, tim there there is this contrast in american politics right now and i think dolores kind of put her finger on it you do have 
these sort of aging men, uh, almost all white men, uh, sort of dominating on one end of the political scale. But then you have this this young crop of um, women of color uh, that that the they call themselves the squad that. Uh, that uh, President Trump calls some other things and his supporters call some other things. Is that indicative of a larger cultural shift or clash in in politics in Washington right now? Yeah, it is. And it's especially pronounced within the Democratic Party, where the top leaders are all septuagenarians. Uh, The the caller didn't uh, even reference Nancy Pelosi, who obviously has a huge role to play in the middle of this controversy. And she's 79. And Yes, that is a real point of concern, especially within the Democratic caucus and the House, because, you know, you've seen for the last four or five years a a number of sort of ham-handed and ultimately unsuccessful attempts to to oust Nancy Pelosi to to get some fresh blood into the House Democratic leadership and and Pelosi has survived because she is extremely savvy she's a great tactical politician both internally and externally so she has held on to power for this for this long period of time but Look, I've been accused of ageism on any number of occasions, Stephen, because having covered Congress for a long time, I have told anybody who would listen that we should have a hard age limit of like 70 on anybody in Congress. Mm. And, and and look, you know, it all across corporate America, there are very few executives who, who are able to serve past the age of 70. There's just an understanding that, you know, that mental capacity begins to decline, diminish, that it's time to bring fresh people into the fresh blood and, and, and younger people with new ideas who are of a younger generation into positions of power. And for anybody who had to watch as, you know, Republican Senator Thad Cochran or certainly, you know, Detroit Democrat, I, 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 I hate to pick on John Conyers here, mm. but I mean, his final few years in office were just torturous to watch. Um, and we we are at, I think, a bit of a pivot point here in terms of that discussion about age. I don't want to go way down the rabbit hole. But if, yeah, if Joe Biden is your nominee for president next fall, you would have Joe Biden entering office if he won as the oldest person to ever enter office. Be elected, and, yeah. Yeah, to ever be elected, competing against another septuagenarian and Donald Trump. And you have this inverted economic landscape in the 21st century where the, the 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 that economic landscape is sort of shifting beneath our feet in real time and yet we're counting on a lot of people who were born in the 40s to to deal with these things i i think that that's a huge problem for a lot of voters and it certainly feeds into the angst for people like aoc and the squad on the left okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue with him alberta and talk about his book American Carnage. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Cliff in Detroit, Brad in Shelby Township, Arnold in Farmington Hills. We will get to you next. You want to join them? 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. My guest is Tim Alberta. He is Political Magazine's chief political correspondent and author of a new book titled American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump. Uh, Tim, uh, I want to talk in your book about this uh, background that you say led up to Trump's entry to the White House. Talk about the role of 
George W. Bush's presidency and his record low approval numbers at the end of his last term in office. Yeah. So, you know, I think we all recognize that and remember that when George W. Bush was leaving office, that he was historically unpopular and that obviously the middle of the electorate had turned against him and against his party. And certainly the left had had long ago uh, lost their affection for George W. Bush. But there was also a real sense of disillusionment on the right. There were a lot of conservatives in the Republican Party who looked around at that point and saw, you know, skyrocketing debt and deficit and an, an administration that had been really quite reckless fiscally in many ways. They saw Medicare Part D, which was the biggest entitlement expansion since the Great Society. They saw No Child Left Behind, which was the biggest intrusion of the federal government ever into K-12 education. And they saw, you know, the, the, the terrible bungled handling of Hurricane Katrina and of Terry Schiavo and of the Harriet Myers nomination to the Supreme Court. And there was just a real sense that, that the Bush presidency had been a bit of a disaster, certainly in its second term. And I think even on top of that, I would add, Stephen, that, you know, George W. Bush, after he was reelected, domestically came out and said he wanted to do two big things. He wanted to reform Social Security and he wanted to pass comprehensive immigration reform. And both of those items ran into ferocious resistance from the conservative wing of the party and certainly sort of a nascent populist blue collar base in the Republican Party that said, you're not touching our Social Security and you're definitely not going to legalize and offer citizenship to, you know, some 10 million undocumented immigrants. That's not fair to us. It's going to depress our wages, etc. So George W. Bush's final couple of years in office were, were really a bit of a disaster. And when you saw in 2008, Bush's final year in office, as Sarah Palin comes onto the scenes as John McCain's running mate, and she exposes this this real visceral intense disconnect between the sort of upscale, managerial, white-collar, country club wing of the Republican Party that had been running things for decades, and that sort of downscale, culturally conservative, blue-collar wing of the party that was increasingly antagonized by the political class and felt like they were condescended to and that they that their concerns weren't taken seriously, you know, economically and culturally and otherwise, this was beginning to build a bit of a powder keg. And then that fall, of course, the, the banks were bailed out when the, the economy almost collapsed in the fall of 08. And then on top of that, you have the election of the first African-American president and all of the cultural implications therein. So suddenly, you know, both politically and culturally and socioeconomically, with millions of jobs being shed across the country and, and particularly hitting the manufacturing sector, this this was the stars aligning in, in, in all the wrong ways for a different Republican Party to sort of emerge from the ashes. And we began to see that, obviously, a couple of years later with the rise of the Tea Party and this sort of insurgency from the right that really swallowed up the old establishment. So, so Donald Trump sort of walks into the middle of this and I, I think masterfully, I think, capitalizes on what had been happening to the party uh, up to that point and and beats a lot of uh, established Republicans uh, in in the primaries, maybe because there are so many of them running against him, uh, but but also because he's tapping into that frustration, I guess, that people that people feel. And he wins and he wins the presidency. I wonder if you think that win means that that old Republican Party, the party of George W. Bush, for instance, uh, is dead or somehow uh, just out of the picture permanently. What, what will happen to the Republicans, I guess, uh, because of what Donald Trump has done? You know, Stephen, 
I'm a big believer that nothing is permanent in politics, that, that everything is cyclical. Now, sometimes those cycles can last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And, and we've seen that uh, in, in both parties as, as they have changed and as their coalitions have shifted or inverted. But what you're seeing now, I think, is that old Republican Party is very much in hibernation. And it might be in hibernation for quite some time because what Donald Trump was able to tap into, what he was able to weaponize was not just that anger, that resentment, that sense of grievance politics uh, that that was really percolating on the right for uh, quite a period of time. What he was also able to expose and take advantage of was a really, really weakened Republican Party. You know, we think of institutions in America and we talk often about their decline and the public's diminishing confidence in institutions like organized religion, like the media, obviously, like public education, uh, even the military to to some extent over the years. We've begun to see a real loss of faith and confidence in American institutions. We don't always think about political parties as institutions, but they absolutely are. And I think the weakening, the systemic weakening of the Republican Party as an institution, as much as anything else I just described a few minutes ago, really invited the rise of Trump, which is to say that Trump would not have been able to hijack a Republican Party unless it was ready to be hijacked and it was vulnerable to that takeover. And so I think the real challenge for Republicans is not even on sort of you know, ideological grounds in sort of wrestling back the party from Trump and and saying, no, we are not this, you know, this xenophobic nationalist entity uh, that rejects, you know, the old orthodoxy on, on free trade and, you know, pretty liberalized immigration policies. Uh, I think the question is also kind of structurally how to rebuild and, and how to incentivize more office holders entering uh, politics in the years to come that, that the old Republican model, while flawed, was ultimately far more sustainable than this new Trump model. Because at the end of the day, the demographic writing is very much on the wall for the Republican Party. Sure. And George W. Bush, for his many shortcomings, he understood that. George W. Bush won 40-40% of the Hispanic vote in 2004 to get reelected. Mitt Romney, John McCain, Donald Trump, none of them have topped 30% among Hispanics. And that is a share of the electorate that is growing every minute of every day. And Republicans will not be able to win in the very near future if they are depending on this Trump coalition. Uh, Let's quickly go back to the phones here. Kathy in Ferndale, I've got about a minute left, but I want to get you in here. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Uh Um, Okay, what, what I think about this whole thing is that we do need to quit the whole impeachment thing. And that we really need to focus on winning 2020. And if that's our last chance to send Trump from the White House to jail, directly to jail, that would be the ultimate. <laughs> okay. and, and, and for me, instead of like when they go low, we go high. If they go low, it's time for us to go lower. Oh, I mean, we wow. just need to win. Okay. Kathy, Kathy, I want to get, I wanna get to, Kathy, I want to get to Tim's reaction. I'm sorry to cut you off there. We don't have much time. Do you think that the Democrats can beat Donald Trump in 2020? Oh, sure they can. Look, Stephen, Donald Trump in 2016 won the presidency by a margin of three battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, by a combined total of 77,744 votes. So he has a very, very thin margin for error. And for every one base voter who Donald Trump believes he is mobilizing and galvanizing with some of his rhetoric recently, certainly about the squad, he is at real risk of alienating suburban Republicans. And those are the people who he needs as a part of his coalition to be reelected. Okay. All right. Tim Alberta. 
author of American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. It is always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.